There is a term that is used today that those of us who are, well, let's say a little north of 30 years old might find rather unfamiliar, and that is the word influencer. Now, I looked this word up in the Oxford English Dictionary, and they define it this way. An influencer is someone with the ability to influence potential buyers of a product or service by promoting or recommending the items on social media. Now, my understanding is that to be an influencer, you need to have somewhere between half a million and a million followers on your social media sites. Now, I guess there are some people they call micro-influencers that they only have 10 to 50,000 people. But nonetheless, these people are people who use their influence to urge others to purchase a product or a service that otherwise they might not be interested in. And basically, what these influencers do is that they talk. And they, by use of words, promote whatever it is they're trying to promote. Now, the interesting thing is, and the reality is, is that many influencers today are not just promoting a product or a service. They're promoting an ideology. They're promoting an idea, a concept, a system of thought. And they are attempting to persuade other people to buy into their way of thinking. And of course, when you buy into their way of thinking, it means you reject older patterns or ideas of thinking. Now, we've always had influencers in our society. We just called them by different names. We called them mentors, or we called them teachers, or maybe even politicians, or possibly even salesmen. And throughout history, there have been those who have attempted to use their position and influence to persuade others to adopt their viewpoints. And quite frankly, most of us probably at some time have done that ourselves. The big difference, however, today from the past is that the mentors, the teachers that influenced us before were individuals that we had a personal relationship with. We knew them personally. But the influencers of today are little more than talking heads. We don't know them, we simply hear them. They simply have garnered this following among themselves. Now the challenge of this, the challenge that we all face, is what do we believe? There's a lot of talk out there. How do we know what's true? Whom do we trust? Is it possible to detect when someone is telling the truth to us or simply attempting to manipulate us? What happens when the influencers in society promote falsehood to such a great extent that what dominates in the society is error and falseness. 
and threatens the very survival of truth and of even those who believe the truth. In that, we find the struggle of Psalm 12. Now, Psalm 12 is a lament psalm. Um, A few years ago, some of you guys remember, at the Men's Build Conference, we had a speaker by the name of Mark Vergrop. And Mark came and taught us about the subject of lament. He said that lament is when we give honest expression to our pain. It's when we wrestle with our sorrow instead of attempting to rush to get to the end of it. In his little book that he wrote called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, he says this, Lament is how you live between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament asks the question, where are you, God? God, if you really loved me, why are these things happening in my life? And the goal of lament is to honestly face our pain and struggle while turning our eyes towards God as our Redeemer and to believe the promises of God even though the pain persists. One-third of the Psalms are lament Psalms. It is the largest category of the Psalms. Some of, the, some of them are individual laments, like Psalm 13, and Pastor Wayne is going to talk about that next week. And Psalm 12 is what's known as a community lament. It's lamenting what is going on in the community, not just what is happening in the individual's life. Now, whenever we read lament, one of the things we recognize is that David took his pain seriously. He did not try to pretend that, well, everything's okay. Just because he believed in God and God was powerful and that God is working everything out according to the counsel of his own will did not mean that the experience he was enduring wasn't painful. He struggled through the pain. Sometimes we're too quick to rush through it, to pretend it doesn't really hurt us. But David was honest, and he faced the pain. And all that introduction kind of leads us into Psalm 12. We don't know exactly when David wrote this psalm. Sometimes we do know in some of the psalms when David wrote it. But this one, we don't. It's likely he wrote it when he was running from King Saul, who was out to take his life. Some Bible scholars believe it was written at the time when David had run away. He had met the priests at Nob, and then later on, as they had helped him on his escape, Saul's servant dog had come, and he had killed those priests. Whatever the case, we know that it's a psalm in which David is is struggling with what's going on around him. Now, there are three speakers in this psalm. There's the writer, there's David, there's the flatterers that we'll get to in a moment, and there's God. We're going to look at this psalm in three parts. First of all, we're going to look at David's prayer in verses 1 to 4. Then we're going to look at the promise of God in verses 5 and 6. And finally, the provision by God in verses 7 and 8. 
So let's begin at verse 1. David writes, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all the flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Well, as we begin this psalm right out, David cries out for help. Save, O Lord. Some translations translate help, Lord. There's no introduction. In some of the psalms where David prays and cries out to God, he sort of introduces it with, God, you are so great, or God, you're amazing, or God, I can trust you. But here there's nothing like that at all. There is simply the utterance and the cry from the heart, please, God, save us. David here may be expanding on what he said back in Psalm 11.3 when he said, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The situation he finds himself in is full of menace. It's full of danger. And David feels his own incomplete inability to deal with it at all. In fact, things are so bad, things are so bad that he says it's as though the godly have completely disappeared. Either because they've been suppressed by the dominant culture or because they've been seduced into buying into what the culture's position is, David feels isolated and alone. Reminds me of Elijah the prophet in 1 Kings 19 when he's running away from Jezebel. And he gets down to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, and he meets God there, and God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And I think in a similar way, David feels isolated and alone. It's as though all the godly have gone. And when the godly decline, society goes rotten. And in verses 2 to 4, he gives us the reason for this very dramatic expression of prayer. He says, everyone's a liar. Society is completely falling apart. And he defines what he means by that in a couple of ways. First of all, he says, everyone lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. It's interesting, that Hebrew word that's translated here, flattery, literally means lips of smoothness. In other words, you can't put any confidence in what these people say. They say what people want to hear to get those people to drop their guard, and then they can manipulate them and take advantage of them. And all of this flattery, this sweet talk, comes from a double heart. And again, the Hebrew says a heart and a heart. 
what they say to your face hides what they really think in their heart. They believe one thing, but they say another. Double-blinded doesn't mean they're confused. Sometimes we use that phrase as though it describes somebody in confusion. A number of years ago, a guy by the name of Oz Guinness wrote what I think is one of the greatest theological treatises on doubt, and he called it In Two Minds. And he talked about how a person who is struggling with doubt is torn between two positions, and they're trying to figure out which one to go for. But here, that's not the problem. It's not that these people are confused or torn between two issues. They know exactly what they think. They are manipulating. They are saying one thing even as they believe something else. When I think about this, to me, I think of the stereotype used car salesman. Now, I hope none of you are used car salesmen here. And if you are, please, I hope you're not like this. But I think of the stereotypical used car salesman. You know, you walk onto his car lot. He comes out in his flashy sport coat with a big smile on his face. He shakes your hand. He gives you his name and asks yours. And he says, how can I help you? And you say, well, I need to buy a car. And he says, oh, you've come to the right place. I've got the best cars in town. And I'll get you into the very best vehicle that you can possibly afford. And all the time, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, I got this lemon back here on the lot. Maybe I can unload on this sucker. That's kind of the idea of what's going on here. They're saying all these things, but in their heart, it's not what they mean. They have a whole other attitude, another desire in their heart. Spurgeon, in his commentary on the Psalms, quotes an old Puritan by the name of Thomas Adams who said this, a man without a heart is a wonder, but a man with two hearts is a monster. Solomon knew about this, Proverbs 26, 28, a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. So these liars are flattering, but that's not all. They're also boasting and full of arrogance. They are so self-confident. They are filled with hubris. They see themselves as accountable to no one. They can say whatever they want with no consequences. They expect that whatever they say or the consequence of their words, whatever they are, have nothing to do with them. They recognize no authority, no master, but their own wills. Our lips are our own, they say. We'll use them as we please. And if we exercise our right and say whatever we want, and something bad happens to people as a result, we take no responsibility for that. And in the face of all this, David feels helpless. He cries out to God in verse 3, cut off all these flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boasts. God cut them off. David knew he was powerless to do it. And the community around him is so filled with these lies 
that there is no hope unless God intervenes. That seems like a pretty relevant thing to our culture today, doesn't it? It's how we often feel. The overwhelming power of the so-called influencers in our culture often leave us gasping for air and thinking there is no escaping their deception unless God steps in and does something. There's a little limerick. It's been attributed to Oliver Wendell Holmes, but we really don't know exactly who wrote it. It goes like this. God made a hopeful beginning... But man spoiled his chances by sinning. We trust that the story will end in God's glory, but at present, the other side's winning. Now, I think that's some pretty bad theology, but I think it's often how we feel. We feel like, God, the other side's winning. When verses 5 and 6 God speaks. We have the promises of God. It says, Because the poor plundered, because the needy groaned, I will now rise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. God sees what's going on. It says, The poor plundered, the needy are groaning. I see this. I know what's happening. I'm not blind to the situation of the people being abused by these easy talkers. They think no one sees, but God does. This is the very first psalm we have that records an answer by God to one of David's prayers. And God promises, he says, I'm going to arise. I like how the message paraphrase captures this. It says, God says, I've had enough, I'm on my way. To arise means to act. When a king sat on his throne, maybe one of his military commanders would come to him and report that there was an invasion taking place on the border that needed to be dealt with. Or maybe as he sat on his throne, one of his subjects would come to him and report about bad things going on somewhere in the kingdom. And as the king would hear that, then he would stand up. And when he would stand up, that was an indication that he was going to take action. He was going to do something. And that's the concept here. God says, I will arise. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to do something. We often read about God arising in the Psalms. Psalm 919, arise, O Lord. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Psalm 10, 12, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Psalm 68, 1, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. And there, there are many others. And God is saying, I am going to arise and unleash my great power for those who are being oppressed. And in this we have the answer to David's prayer. And just as God heard the cry of 
Hagar in the wilderness in Genesis 21, just as he heard the cry of the people of Israel and their enslavement in Egypt in Exodus 3, as he heard the cry of Elijah in in 1 Kings 17, here he hears the cry of David. And he hears the cry of all his people when they cry out to him in terrible times and he promises to act on their behalf. A.W. Tozer in his little book, The Knowledge of God, says this, What peace it brings the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from himself. In coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find him in a receptive mood. He is always receptive to misery and need, as well as to love and faith. Whenever we go to God, he will listen, even as he listened to King David in this horrible time. And the thing is, when God speaks, his words are absolutely trustworthy. In verse 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Immediately after hearing the words of God, we see that those words are contrasted with the words of the liars that we read about earlier. Their words can't be trusted. You can't rely on a thing they say. But God's words are pure There are no inaccuracies in them. There are no hidden motives. The purpose of God's words are not to manipulate us, but to give us hope. And he compares them to silver refined in a furnace seven times. And you know that the number seven in the Bible is the number of completion or the number of of perfection. And the indication here is that the words of God are utterly, completely, absolutely dependable. They are not empty tokens. They are accurate and true. And as much as the flatter's words in verse 2 are devoid of any real content or meaning, the words of God are full of truth and the promises that you can build your life on. And despite how bad things look for David, God gives him hope. And just as pure silver makes those who have it wealthy, so the pure words of God make us rich in truth. So David says, Lord, help. Everything's a mess. God says, I'll stand up. You can trust me. I'm going to do something. And in verses 7 and 8, We have the conclusion, that is the provision by God. O Lord, you will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. Verse 7 is a great promise. God will guard his people. In verse 2, David had said, everyone's a liar. But that was hyperbole, wasn't it? Not literal. God has his people. And again, I'm reminded of the story of Elijah and that same story when he's down there at Mount Horeb and God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, well, God, I've been trying to stand for you and they've killed all the prophets and I'm the only one left. God says, no, 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 no. 
There are 7,000 that have never bowed the knee to Baal. Now, in a great nation, 7,000 is not that many, but it's sure a lot more than one. In the same way, David, you're not alone. God keeps his word, and notice what it says. He will guard us from this generation forever. God is guarding his people from the deceptions of this generation. And God's protection is happening while the wicked are strutting all around. And David now can step away with a new conviction that all is not lost because God is caring for his people. So no matter how bad things get in this world, God's people can always count on his protecting power. But then we get verse 8. On every side the wicked prowl, as violence is exalted among the children of man. And it's very disappointing. Because the situation has not changed. David has prayed. God says, I'll arise. God will guard his people, but the wicked are still dominating and unleashing their power and their evil in society. They're continuing to promote what is vile and empty and perverse. The NIV translates it this way, the wicked freely strut about when what is vile is honored among men. But David has put his hope in God. He's put his hope in God's words. And though the outward situation has not changed, he understands that God will bring him through it by guarding him from being deceived by the evil promoted around him. Now let me conclude with three applications I think we can take away from this text this morning that are relevant to us. The first one I would say is this. Remember the power of words. Remember the power of words. We live in a culture that believes in the power of words. We hear it all the time in the media. It's interesting today that if you disagree with somebody, and if you would dare to verbalize that disagreement, even if you do it kindly and, and gener- gently, you're often accused of being brutal against them. Because today, if we use words to disagree with what anyone else thinks or feels, we're accused of abusing them. We used to have that little saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never touch me. That was always a lie. But today it's almost exactly reversed. And today, to disagree with anybody on pretty much anything, you're accused of being violent against them. Now let's face it, that attitude is entirely an attempt to manipulate us. But, nonetheless, it does reveal that people believe words matter. So as the people of God, 
We need to be very careful about the voices we listen to and the words we take in because they have power in our lives. And most of the voices in the media today have little or no connection to the Word of God or to truth in any way. Most of them qualify as vile or empty, especially when they're dealing with truth, justice, or beauty. And that means that we need to immerse ourselves in the pure and precious words of God if we're going to maintain our spiritual bearings in a culture going off the rails. And since we are bombarded every day with the voices of our culture, we breathe in our culture like we breathe in air. We must discipline ourselves to take the time to listen to the voice of God in the Word of God It alone is the truth we can trust. It alone has the power to give us hope in dark days. And that's why we need to take time to read the Word of God. We need to come to church and hear the Word of God taught. We need to read books that help us understand, solid books, that help us understand what the Word of God says. Because words have power. And we're either being influenced by the words of the influencers or being influenced by the words of God. The second application I draw from this psalm is this. In dark days of cultural rebellion against God, we need to cry out to God for help. The Bible never underrates the power of big talk. Satan used it with Eve in the Garden of Eden. Eat this fruit and you will be like God. It's not surprising that in the book of Revelation, the ally of the beast is the false prophet who speaks great words. Only God can silence these. And in our struggles with our own society and the direction it's going and the words that it's using, we need to cry out to God, like David, lamenting the current circumstances and pleading for him to intervene. Sometimes as Christians, we are guilty of, we talk to one another. We complain to one another about what's happening around us. Do we talk to God about it? Do we go to God and cry out to him like David did? Do we say, Lord, help, it's beyond us? We need to cry out to God for deliverance. But finally, the last application I'd leave you with is this. As we live in these dark days and in challenging times in the world, we live with hope. Even as this psalm ends with no immediate solution to the problem, God has promised to guard his people from being duped by the seductive words of the influencers. And I find that a great promise. He is going to guard us from being duped even though all around us they're spreading their lies, 
They're flattering with their lips. They're saying, we're not accountable to anyone. We can say whatever we want. And we fear that we might get drawn in to their lies and deceit. But God has promised as we maintain connection with his word, he will guard us. William Scrogue, you said, no matter to what extent evil prevails, the righteous may always reckon on the keeping power of God. So live with hope. Hope that God is protecting you. Hope that God will arise and ultimately know that one day he will intervene in a great, powerful, and dramatic way. But until that day, He's guarding his people from being seduced into the lies of the wicked. And I'll close with this quote from my old buddy John Calvin. Let the faithful therefore in our day not be unduly discouraged at the melancholy sight of a very corrupt and confused state of the world. Remember, he's writing this in the mid-1500s. But let them consider that they ought to bear it patiently, seeing their condition is just like that of David in time past. There's nothing new under the sun. And God has not changed. We can trust his pure words, and we can trust his guarding protection. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for the truth that we find here in your word. Thank you, Lord, that your words are pure. Lord, we don't have to read them wondering whether or not we can trust what is said. We can read them with the absolute assurance that every single one is pure and righteous, and trustworthy. Help us to sink our minds and our souls deep into your word. We thank you, Lord, that you're guarding us from the deceptions that are promoted all around us by our society. And we thank you that we can live in hope. And Lord, we pray for our country and for the Western world as a whole, for the satanic deceptions that are being promoted. We ask, Lord, that you would intervene. We ask that you would intervene not simply with vengeance, but with grace. That you would intervene so that people would know truth, they would know the gospel. They would embrace that gospel. And they would find not only truth, but a relationship with you and the joy that comes with it. A joy that all their lies and flattery and boasting and pride can never produce. May these words sink deep into our hearts. May we honor Christ as we practice them. For we ask it in his name. Amen.